It's no secret that writing can be lonely work, but does it really have to be? Whether you're full-time, part-time, or just starting out, you'll get insights into the tricks, tips, and production habits of writers from every level of the biz. From best-selling authors to those launching their first novels, you're sure to be in the company of friends as we encourage great writers to divulge and share their secrets. This is The Great Writer Share Podcast with your host, best-selling author, Daniel Wilcox. Hello and welcome to episode number 49 of the Great Writer Share podcast with me, Daniel Wilcox, where every week I hijack an hour or so of time from some of the kindest and hardest working writers around today to join me on the show and discuss everything that makes them tick, raw and bounce. Today's date is Saturday the 15th of August and I'll jump straight into my personal update. In fiction news, I have just wrapped up the episode four of When Winter Comes, um, which is a huge milestone for me. I'm very, very happy to have that done and uh, well ahead of the time that I needed it to, because that's going to um, a lot of different people to obviously do their read-throughs ahead of publication on September 2nd. Um, it gives me a bit of a break as well, because I, I managed to get into the flow and write this one very, very quickly. I'm very happy how the story came out. Um there might need to be a few tweaks here and there, but I think for the most part it's it's good. But yeah, that's that's four episodes down, which um, for me, the experiment with this book was to find a way to write a bigger work in pieces that were manageable while constantly putting new content out there. Um, and as I've kind of um, not teased as much, but suggested in, in previous episodes, there is a, a method to the madness that I'm trialing as well to see if I can make this click for horror. Yeah, so far in terms of how this will box it, it's looking to be a 90,000 word book already at episode four. And there are, you know, another possible three to four books to come, which would make this around, oh, I'm doing the math live on air, 170,000 words or so, which would be a big old book for me. So I'm really excited to see what it comes out as and to know that there's this big mammoth at the end that will be waiting to be packaged into. Uh, I'll probably look at doing some kind of hardback. I'll do obviously a digital box set, um, all that kind of good stuff. But yeah, I'm looking forward to getting it to a point where I can package it. And as I mentioned last week, still trying to enjoy the process. So there's that. Uh, In nonfiction news, I am this week, uh, as you'll be listening to this, I will have been making progress on the productivity book and putting my first few chapters down. Um, as I said at the beginning, this is Saturday the 15th, so I've not quite gotten it yet, but that's the plan for this week. So uh, I'll let you know the week after how that's gone. Um, a little obstacle to that is that my laptop will be going in for repair because, um, and I won't, I won't dwell on this massively, but suffice to say, if anyone's been looking to get any of the latest MacBook Airs, be cautious because this will be the third time I've had a complete keyboard switch out since October 2018 and I know I'm someone that typically does write a lot of words but at the same time the keyboard should be able to handle better than that and the problem is that for the last four or five months or so it's basically double tapped T's, R's, S's, A's, sometimes it triple taps spaces Um, and I basically just had to find a shortcut to make this work by getting a bluetooth keyboard but now I have a desktop pc set up that I can use while this goes off for repair Um, but yeah, just just be cautious. It's not always it's not always the best. The more money you spend, the better the product. Just <laughs> although I do absolutely love this computer. I just if the keyboard worked perfectly, then I'd be happy. So fingers crossed, this will come back quite quickly um, in terms of getting repaired, and then I can crack on and just get more work done because it's not awful carrying around a Bluetooth keyboard, but it's just something else to remember. And you look like a bit of a dick in, in cafe sat there with a laptop with a keyboard that people can see, but they can't see that it's broken. And then a Bluetooth keyboard sitting in front of that. So yeah, that's uh, that's that's first world problems for you, but there we go. 
Thank you to everyone who jumped in and answered the question that I posted over on the Patreon and the Facebook pages, which was, what is your biggest writing barrier? And as usual, I had a slew of responses. We had Yanni Jade, who says, my biggest barrier is having the time to actually sit down and write. My job takes a lot of mental rather than physical power. So by the time I finish, come home, make tea and shower, I'm knackered and then it's time for bed. And I can completely emphasize with that. It's a... Uh, it's it's different when you're at a job when you're sort of walking around like I did a lot of bar jobs which I then went on and sort of wrote after but yeah when it's when it's mental power as well that was really really draining so I feel for you Yanni. Uh, Faye Trask says uh, I have two my biggest barriers are prioritization I tend to put other plans and whatnot ahead of my own constantly saying I'll just squeeze it in later and imposter syndrome massively I'm a massive people pleaser yep totally feel that as well uh, I don't think that's that uncommon at all. Harley Christensen says, ultimately, the biggest obstacle as of late has been other people's priorities and managing those external and ever-shifting constraints on my creative time. Ritu says, this is 100,000% my biggest barrier. If the day could be extended by, say, four hours and my family could be transplanted somewhere else in those four hours, I'd get so much more done. Um, and I, I have mixed feelings about wishing for more time because I, I know that when I had less time than I do now I wished for more and now that I've got more I wish for more and I think it's just a, an, an end of sleep you've got to be careful of because we'll we'll always find a way to fill it with crap <laughs> Kev Harrison says since Covid it's just been an increase in workload there are ways to mitigate it and lately I've just been trying to get as much work as possible done by Friday so I have a couple of days to run at the work in progress not ideal but strange times yes Covid has definitely shattered a lot of people's routines and made things difficult um, but I think and I hope by this point that people are really starting to find their way forward um or if not getting to a position where they might be at some point soon claire littlemore says uh, i never thought about ambition being my enemy um but i agree with so much of what you say dan and just as a side note i did put in the post for this that ambition is my biggest barrier to uh, writing uh, i try to fit too much in and then it doesn't all get done and i end up very stressed and feel guilty for taking time away from my family to try and get the work done i'm trying to strive for a better balance and being more able to accept that i can only do so much focusing on what's important is key as you say um absolutely i as just to add to that a little bit yeah the i i put that ambition was my biggest obstacle because you tend to get to a point where you just cram yourself you tend to cram your timetable full of things that you think are going to help you just push 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 until you reach that point of burnout and then you have to kind of peel back a lot so really finding that balance is difficult but it's it's a work in progress and something that i think is improving all the time and i think that just comes with experience um and i don't think it's ever fully fixed particularly like you say claire when it comes to trying to fit in time with family as well that's always really difficult balance to strike but um it's just something you just got to keep working on uh, and there were responses as well from holly line ian middleton meg jolly and jasmine plate so thank you everyone for commenting and keep an eye out for next week's question Today's guest is the sensational Meg Littor from the iWriterly.com YouTube channel and the new author of The Cyborg Tinkerer, available on November 17th, if I remember that rightly, and please <laughs> have from the interview. Oh, prep. Um, and I, I had a fantastic conversation with Meg. Um, she's someone who came into my sphere of attention uh, a few months ago. Um, she's doing fantastic things in terms of giving advice to writers on YouTube. She's uh, used to work at a literary agency and now she's self-publishing her first novel which is very very exciting go check out the cover it's absolutely stunning um, and in this conversation we go a lot into what unique lens working in a literary agency gives her when it comes to self-publishing and some of the lessons that people can learn from um, the traditional publishing at the minute uh, we talk about building a platform on YouTube, how you can go about that, how Meg got started and uh, the best ways to really drill down and find your niche so you can build your audience. So all of that to come. 
But before we dive into that, I want to give you a quick reminder of the Patreon page over at www.patreon.com forward slash greatwritersshare, where for as little as $1 a month, you can get involved in a whole host of good stuff and basically just get loads of behind the scenes access to the show. You can be in the priority list for asking guest questions. You can get early access to episodes. We've got the Great Writers Learn series. We've got a private Slack group. And there's a lot more coming next week when we hit episode 50, which is super exciting. And I just realized I've not mentioned episode 50 this week. That's coming next week. So definitely check out for that because there's some good stuff coming there. Uh, so yeah, if you want to get involved in all of that good stuff, head over to www.patreon.com forward slash great writers share and I'll see you on the other side. But now without any further ado, let's dive into the interview with the one and only Meg Latour. Meg Latour is a best-selling science fiction and fantasy author, YouTube darling and founder of iWriterly creator of the free query critique platform, Query Hack, co-host of The Publishable Show, and blogger. Formerly, she worked at a literary agency, and she has a background in magazine publishing, medical technical writing, and journalism. Needless to say, words are her thing. In her free time, Meg enjoys spending time with her husband and son, running, going to Renaissance fairs and Comic-Cons, and napping. Meg, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. No, I'm excited to have you. I think uh, we were saying just before you uh, jumped on that we've interacted on and off sort of tertiarily um and obviously this is our first time actually having a, a nice chat and i've been excited to talk to you because I'm, I'm really really interested in the whole arena of youtube uh everything else you've got going on and specifically i love how you're a, another example of how people can build a platform to sell a book and find success in, in varying different ways um but i did want to start off with my my first question diving into a little bit of something that i don't personally understand because i can't remember the last time i took one but you took a break throughout the whole of June. And as someone with such a busy platform, such a busy life, how did, how did you manage to take an entire month off? Honestly, I'm probably the worst person to give advice on how to relax <laughs> or how to take a month off because I'm a bit of a workaholic, which I think to some extent all entrepreneurs are. Mm. But I, I meant to take the whole month of June off uh, because I had some ma- major health issues. I ended up taking only like half of June off (laughs) because I don't know how to relax. Um, But the second half of the month, I think like I made like a Skillshare course and I prepped a bunch of materials for like the (laughs) Cyborg Tinker, which I I post on YouTube. But anyways, I would say that YouTubers generally have a ton of issues when it comes to burnout because we aren't good at taking breaks. Usually YouTubers will create content in advance of taking time off, which means that you're like kicking yourself in the butt before you take a break, which is not very relaxing. (laughs) But um, I do recommend recommend that YouTubers schedule time into your year when you're not making any content because then you actually get a break, you know, like have a couple of weeks where you're like, hey guys, I'm not going to post videos. We'll see you back in this month. Um, So tell your audience what to expect from you. So then that way, you know, you don't just disappear unannounced and people are like, hey, where is that person? Um, Because I think it makes you seem unreliable from an audience perspective. But um, Anyways, I, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not the best person to talk about taking a break, but I did take a couple of weeks off and then I was like, I can't sit still. And then I started doing stuff again, but I was very clear with my audience, like, Hey, I'm taking this month off. Surprise. I'm back already. Um, but I, <laughs> I did, um, I try to be more active on Patreon because, you know, I don't know, I think you have a Patreon too. And, you know, you want to still give them value even if you're taking time off. So I think that's one of the tough parts. But yeah, definitely let your audience know what to expect from you. Yeah. Did you find within those two weeks that you did charge your creative well? What was it particularly you did to take that break? 
Um, what I basically did was I unplugged. So I took off all the social media apps off my phone. I watched YouTube for fun. And so that was tough where I was like, okay, I'm not going to watch YouTube because I think in my brain, I've now associated YouTube with work. So it's mm. no longer entirely relaxing. It's kind of like I'm like my brain, my worky brain turns on. So I took all the apps off my phone and um, I read a lot. I spent time with my husband and son. I think I was much more purposeful with my time because I don't know if this happens to you, but when I am like working and juggling a lot of things during the day, sometimes my brain is still in like fantasy land or sci-fi land and I'm supposed to be hanging out with my kids. So I, I tried to, you know, be more purposeful, more mentally present. So. Mm. It's tough. It's tough. Um, and we obviously introduced a load of stuff that you do in the intro. You have fingers in so many pies, but for my listeners, can you give a little bit of an overview of how you got into the writing world and where your journey's taking you to today? Absolutely. This is going to be a roundabout story. So hang in there. I swear it'll make sense. (laughs) (laughs) So I started writing as a kid, as so many writers do. And I always knew then that I wanted to write books. And when I met my husband more than a decade ago, I'd shared with him that I wanted to write books and I wasn't at the time. And he says something that I will never forget. He's like, if you want to write a book, why don't you? It was just so simple that I was like, yeah, I should be <laughs> writing a book if that's what I want. So he told me that dreams don't have to wait and I don't have to wait to, until like a certain time in my life to write books or for when it's most convenient because writing books or doing other things is never convenient. You just have to make time for what's important. But I wrote books for many, many years, a few of which I queried and I didn't get any bites. And eventually I applied to intern at a literary agency and got in. I interned there for a bit and then I was promoted to literary agent apprentice, which is kind of like an equivalent of an associate agent at other literary agencies. Cause you get like, you take on clients, you go on submission and so forth. During that time, I learned a ton about writing books and the traditional publishing industry. And eventually I did have to leave the agency uh, because in case you don't know this, or you know, in case listeners listening don't know this, most literary agents work on a commission only basis. So they don't earn like a salary. And I couldn't afford to work at the agency for free and write novels on the side mm. also for free. So um, you know, I have a family and a mortgage and girls got bills to pay. So <laughs> at that point, I'd started my YouTube channel while at the agency and I had been writing novels on the side. So I was trying to do like all the things at once. And after doing tons of interviews with successful indie authors on my YouTube channel, uh, I think my eyes were really open then to like the opportunities within self-publishing. And, you know, I'd always thought that I wanted to be a hybrid author, but I think I was like, wow, this is really viable. So I decided that my debut novel, The Cyborg Tinkerer, which is, um, a sci-fi adult space opera steampunk mashup because you know who wants who needs to pick one genre <laughs> is um I, i'm self-publishing that and um yeah i've been writing books for about 10 years now and i'm super excited to finally call myself an author that is super exciting and uh, we were saying as well before we recording the cover for your for your book is absolutely phenomenal and it's definitely one that i'll be picking up and then browsing through as well um, thank I you wanna- so much you're very welcome. I want to go back a little bit to, because I think um, what your husband said and what you what you were saying there is very, very fundamentally key to a lot of writers in terms of why don't you just start writing? I think there are a lot of people out there who, who well, there was a statistic I saw recently, it was something like 80% of, of adults say that they want to write a book. And obviously it's good for us that not everyone does, but it is it can be as simple as literally just putting your fingers to the keyboard and just getting started. So what what was the next step after your husband said why don't you write a book what was your key next step did you did you jump into that writing or or was it looking at sort of work, working within that industry 
I uh, wrote for a handful of years before I started interning. I think I had been writing for six years before I, I applied for the internship at the agency. And because I'd never written a book before, I didn't hop on YouTube. I had like, I think I was like just Googling stuff and looking at writer Digest articles as many like, newbie authors do or writers or whatever. Uh, I remember just researching and then I was like, yeah, I'm just going to like start writing the book. And so I think I had done a little bit of world building. I like made up like names because it was a fantasy novel and I made up names for creatures and trees and <laughs> other things that never come up in the novel. Mm -hmm. And I just pantsed my way through the book and it was awful. It was 200,000 words of pure chaos. And um, I, I, just because I didn't know that I could plan the novels in advance, I don't know why I didn't think of it. So I just kind of wrote and then it was terrible. And then I wrote again, another novel and that was terrible too. And then I wrote like a handful, but I think some authors, they plan their, they're, they're like, I'm going to write my first book and they plan it and that's great. And it works for them or they pants it and you know, that's great. And maybe it works for them. But I feel like a lot of times you have to try in a few novels to see how mm. your brain and creative process work. Yeah. hundred percent. I think you really have to get down into the muck and just play and try and find out what it is that works for you and what that, what that final um, process will be. And I don't totally. think your, your process is ever final, to be honest. No, it really <laughs> <So>. isn't. <laughs> and you mentioned there, obviously you, uh, you've worked at a literary agency. So how does your former work at a literary, I cannot say that word, literary agency give you a unique lens of what's happening in the traditional space now? Because I'm guessing that obviously with self-publishing, all the changes that are happening there. Traditional is obviously having to adapt to everything else. How does your how has your lens been shaped by your experience within that world? Yeah, that's a, a good question. So I'll answer the first one. Um, I think you had uh, about like an ear to the wall, or mm. you're just kind of keeping up to date. And yeah. I think you know I'm constantly staying in touch with literary agent friends and asking them questions. I'm like, Hey, like what, like what's going on? Did you get any new clients? How is submission going? So like out some people I talk to weekly, other, others I talk to monthly or periodically. So I try to keep an ear on like what's currently happening in the traditional publishing space. But, um, I think the, the reason that I decided to self-publish The Cyborg Tinker is because I've kept up to date in the traditional publishing industry. And I knew from my own research, as well as from you know, talking to former colleagues that steampunk and adult sci-fi are a tough sell in traditional publishing right now. Few people are receiving offers and if they are, the advances are pretty small. So, um, and then the, one of the cool things that was like an affirmation that I feel like a lot of indies don't get uh, as far as like, you know, I feel like we all crave external validation mm -hmm. and sometimes as indies, it just kind of sucks. You just don't get it. <laughs> but um, after I announced that I was going to self-publish a Cyborg Tinker, several agents that I didn't know approached me privately just to be like, hey, you made a really smart decision with this book. And that was really encouraging. You know, it sucks because, you know, we all want all marketplaces to be really good and fertile and whatever. But I would say that knowing the marketplace is basically what led me to self-publish and also then talking to indies and asking them questions. But yeah, I think you have to know basically what's selling. So maybe adult sci-fi is selling, but maybe you wrote a specific trope that is super undesirable in the, the marketplace at this current time, like dark, gritty stories are not desirable in this market right now because of COVID-19. Sorry, am I allowed to say that on your podcast? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. I know like some people are trying to avoid saying it because then they get pinged by the internet. No, no. It's the world we live in at the minute. Yes. <laughs> Can't avoid yeah. it. Okay. Um, yeah. So people don't really want dark, gritty stories. They don't really want pandemic stories or virus stories or zombie stories right now. A lot of people, I'd say some people do, but I would say most 
publishers are not interested in that. So I think it's about being mindful of what you're writing and what the marketplace looks like and then thinking about, is it going to come back around? I mean, I could have sat on my book and tried to, you know, traditionally publish it later. But anyways, I thought Indie for lots of reasons was the best path, best path for this book. Mm. Would you be happy to share maybe three of those reasons that you did choose Indie, if you can think of any off the top of your head? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say the biggest reason, obviously, is uh, not the biggest reason, but one of the first reasons is that the traditional publishing marketplace is not good for steampunk or sci-fi. They're just tough sells. Um, I would say the second reason is income. As far as, you know, I, I mean, I feel like people are pretty open about income, like indie yeah. authors, and um, you just earn more as an indie <laughs> than you do for traditional publishing. For traditional publishing, a lot of authors may get most 20k for like an advance and then maybe you never earn out which means you never earn royalties then chop that advance into a bunch of pieces 15% for your agent I don't know 30 to 40% for taxes in the United States and bam what are you left with not enough to live on so um, money was uh, truthfully a, like a really real thing that kind of played into my decision because you know I'm a mom I'm a wife get bills to pay. And then I would say the creative freedom to write a series. So if in traditional publishing, if the publisher buys book one, they can choose whether or not they want to buy book two, three, and however many afterwards. Usually they will wait after book one comes out, see what the reception is. Did people actually buy it? Do people care about it before they will buy book two? And then if they don't buy the later books, it's really tough to then go and self-publish. You can, you can get your rights back and you can do all these sorts of things, but you know, you can't do the what is it called when it's that you give the first book in the series away for free? Lost Leader? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Read the Magnet, Lost Leader, Lost Leader. One yeah. Of them, yeah. Um, so you can't do that as a, like a, it's kind of a marketing strategy, I guess. Mm. So you can't do that um, if you publish books two, three, four, five, six in a series. And then I feel like traditional publishers are known for overpricing their ebooks. It'll be like $12 for like an ebook, whereas like. I, in- I still cannot stand that. <laughs> yeah, I have It makes no sense to me. That. It really doesn't. And so like, if you think about it, it's hard to incentivize readers to start a series if it's like a bajillion dollars for an ebook <laughs> and then, you know, however much for paperback and hardcover, if those are still stocked, then say after six months, bookstores are no longer holding your book anyway. So the only place people can buy it is online. So anyways, I wanted to write a series and I thought that the indie route would allow me that freedom to do that. Mm. It's really, really interesting because you, you hear about all the ways that obviously traditional has in the past obviously dominated the market. You hear about how now independent authors and the self-publishing industry is obviously having an impact on how the traditional uh, publishing industry is, is formed, how it's going forward. But I imagine there have got to be something still that the traditional publishing world is still doing well. So um, what are some key things that you see independent authors ignoring that traditional might still be ahead with? I feel like everyone listening to this is going to hate me because it's going to be the most obvious answer, but I feel like (laughs) editing, like, I feel like there's so many indie authors that are like, I don't need a developmental editor. I'm not going to copy edit. Maybe I'll proofread with Grammarly and then publish the book. So not to state the obvious, but I do think that one of the biggest differences between traditional and indie is that there's a lot of people that just don't necessarily get their books professionally edited before publishing them. In traditional publishing, you work with in-house editors to polish a book prior to publication. So that includes developmental editing, line editing, copy editing, proofreading. Your book is seen by many, many people before it goes out. And unfortunately, I do see many indie authors who just don't hire freelance editors to edit their book prior to publication, which unfortunately does lead to that stigma that self-published books are lower quality, which I don't think is the case for a lot of books. So many indie authors are putting out high-quality books with gorgeous covers, well-edited, well-thought-out 
great marketing plan, the whole shindig. But I do think one of the things that traditional publishing for now is doing better is the editing part. Again, because it's all in-house stuff. Versus indies, you have to you have to foot the bill, which is editing is a big part of that bill. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because when when I first started self-publishing, I learned how quick how easily you could get a book onto the, the Amazon store. And I had a few friends who I'm not gonna name names and I'm not gonna I'm not I'm not gonna call people out, but they weren't doing amazing stuff and the books were they weren't formatted, the covers were awful, the stories weren't fantastic. And part of me was thinking, how how is this going to impact the overall store? But I think Amazon, um, obviously the other stores as well, but Amazon specifically, because that's where my arena of knowledge comes from, um, do a really good job in terms of filtering down the books that aren't so higher quality to the bottom so that the ones that are well-produced do go higher up to the top and they're actually seen. Um, but then you get to a point in which it is <laughs> the only thing that's distinguishable between the, the books that are up at the top as to whether they're indie or traditional is the price tag, which mm-hmm. I still find fascinating. For e-books, totally. Yeah. I am. I'm really excited to get. A, are you familiar with Josh Mailerman's Bird Box? No. Oh well, he's he just released a sequel which came out three days ago, and I really want to get it. But the ebook is literally almost as, as pricey as the hardback, and it just it, it, do, hurts. it just doesn't incentivize you to buy the ebook. I'm like, well, I guess I'll get the paperback or hardcover eventually, and then maybe you forget about the book. Yeah, hmm. it's a, a bad business decision, in my yeah, humble opinion. Yeah. Well, the problem is, and I know that. I know part of the reason, or I assume part of the reason they do this is they know that there will be a core part of their audience who will pay that because it's it's that whole ride that first wave, get everything going, and then maybe they'll lower the price later and reap in that initial financial reward. But I just don't think it's a, it's not the best game to play to to reward fans. Yeah, I think they're just trying to you know earn out or, ra- or rather earn back what they invested into the author into the marketing as quick as they can, and maybe they feel that they can do that on eBooks. But you know, mm. who knows? Yeah. Let's, uh, let's dive a little bit into YouTube because obviously you are very, very successful on YouTube. Um, and it was your partner that actually convinced you to start your YouTube channel. So what was that moment like when he convinced you and talk us through a little bit from the moment of, okay, I'm going to create a YouTube channel to hitting that first published video. Yeah, sure. Um, well, to be truthful, I didn't mean to become a YouTuber. It was sort of an <laughs> accident. But originally back in 2016, I'd been working at the literary agency and writing a lot of like guest blogs for publications like Writer's Digest and Savvy Authors. And over time, I realized that the content wasn't connecting with people in the way that I'd hoped. In other words, people don't really read blogs anymore, or at least not in my case, or not that I found. So I've been writing those blogs because um, I've been seeing a lot of authors, aspiring authors making the same mistakes when querying, and I wanted to try to find a way to help them avoid the mistakes and have like a quicker learning curve. So my husband recommended that I give YouTube a try, and he was an avid watcher of YouTube at the time, and I was not, but he convinced me that this would be a great way to connect with more authors and to help me achieve my goal of educating newbie writers, and over time, I discovered there were two communities on YouTube, BookTube and AuthorTube. I originally, when I first started on YouTube, I dabbled in both types of content before fully jumping into like the writing and publishing how-tos, which is kind of where I found my comfort zone or, I don't know, the content that I enjoyed (laughs) producing, but truthfully, I don't really remember much of the like the first couple of times we posted videos um, at the time I think my husband was editing our videos I edit them now so I, I basically do everything at this point and I think my husband just posted it and then I shared it across my other social media which sounds like really anticlimactic but 
I do remember being really nervous about what people in my real life thought about my making videos, especially because like those earlier videos, you're just trying to figure out what to do and how to present yourself. And I just remember being really nervous that people I knew in real life were going to see them. Um, yeah. So that was the, the origin of I write early. <laughs> yeah. No, I think there's always that tendency of no matter when you put something new up. And it was the same when I started writing that you're worried about what your family are going to think. And once you get past a certain point, that will just blends into the background because they're not the people you're trying to reach they're not really the people that in not so harsh a way that they don't really matter in the whole context of what you're trying to achieve going forward um but i i think it's probably a good a good thing that he pressed publish for you because i know that a lot of people do kind of hover with their finger over the over the mouse and just like ah, do i do i um how how fast did the channel grow or when did you first see that initial sort of uh cliff and that rise Absolutely. So I started in 2017, I think. <laughs> I think it was March of 2017. And then it wasn't until 2019 where our channel really started growing. I want to say, so at one year we had a thousand subscribers, two years, I think we had 3,000, I think. Yeah, I think two years we had 3,000. And then like all of a sudden I did a video that I think was about why books are rejected by literary agents. And it was like, to me, it was like a common sense thing because I'd worked at the, the agency and I just hear a bunch of the common reasons why. And that video took off. And then I watched it and all of a sudden the channel went from like, I don't know, about 2,000 subscribers a year to like, I was getting like 1,000 subscribers a month. Um, and then, and then and eventually got much, much quicker than that. And then it was like 1,000, like say 500 subscribers a day. Wow. Uh, I think at like <laughs> some of the biggest uh, growing growth spurts, but I basically, I saw this video take off and everyone was watching it. It it went, I'm assuming YouTube's algorithms picked it up and it went to YouTube's version of viral, like a very small miniature version (laughs) of viral, you know, cause we're not like a big makeup channel or anything like that. But I saw that and I was like, and I had learned from other YouTubers, YouTube strategies. And essentially when a video takes off, you're supposed to make another video in a similar, that has like similar content, similar topic and then post that. And then basically you start this first wave and then before that wave can crash, you start a second wave. So if you start that first wave, you're up here and then you start a second wave and then make another video, you start that third wave. So basically we just a wave upon wave upon wave. And so I think we grew from like 3,000 subscribers to 33,000 subscribers in 2019. And then 2020, we, it was like a month that before we hit like 50,000 subscribers. And then we hit 60 pretty quickly too. And I think we're at like 68 or 69 at the time of recording this and it's July, 2020. And because I took some time off and I didn't post videos, you lose all your momentum. So you have to build Mm. it back up and it could take weeks or months for YouTube's algorithm to be like, fine, I trust you again. So (laughs) um, we did grow extremely quickly, but I will say the quicker that you grow, uh, or rather the, the more that you grow, the quicker you grow. So as soon as YouTube's algorithm starts picking you up and you like when you hit 60, it's a lot easier to hit 70 than from one to 10,000, if that makes sense. Mm. It's a, a curse of being in the social media age, I think, because I, I do a lot with, or I used to do a lot more with Instagram. I've kind of pulled back a bit because I'm, I'm fading, not fading away from social media, but I'm trying <laughs> to be more, more conscious of how much time I spend on it. But I did have um, a time probably about a year ago where I was posting regularly, lots of content. I was getting lots of followers, lots of engagement on the post. And then you take three, four days of, of not posting on a certain platform and suddenly it just it falls flat. So it's really, yep. I, don't, I don't know what the moral implications of that are, but yeah, I think if you're going to go into the social media arena, you've got to be very, very deliberate, I guess, in your approach as to how often you're going to publish, what, what you're going to do and, and go forward with that. Um, yeah. you, you have established yourself as 
an expert within obviously the field and all the videos that you're, you're posting. And I want to read just a little bit of um, what your, your bio says for iWritely. It says, iWritely is a book publishing resource for genre fiction with more than 120 how-to videos on traditional publish, publishing and self-publishing. One thing that I've always admired about um, particular authors who can build an audience around the subject before they've even published a book is the fact that, like I say, you're, you're building that platform before you've even, even put anything out there. So how did you handle your growth on your channel before you hit publish? And were there ever times where you did question your own validity? Yeah, I would say even today, um, uh, let, me, let me back backtrack. I have imposter syndrome all the time. Like everybody else, I'm always like, ah, like is what I have to say legit? Um, am I a big fat phony? You know, there's things that, you know, you just, I feel like all authors or creatives question themselves. But um, I will, I will say that even today, I have people who often unkindly will question whether or not I should give writing advice. And you have to keep in mind though, when I started my channel, I'd already worked at a literary agency mm. for a few years. I was the lead editor of a magazine. I had many years of journalism and technical writing under my belt. I hadn't published a novel, but I had been actively writing, I want to say for about seven years at the time. And I had other experiences that I thought I could share and help authors within the community because that was my whole goal. I wanted to provide value um, and then eventually became an author platform. Mm -hmm. So in other words, when I first started out, I based the teachings on my channel around my experiences from having worked at a literary agency um, and journalism or as a magazine editor rather than an author first. And I think some people, it's the opposite. They, they do the teachings based on what, how, like, what they've learned through their writing. But when I think about all this, I think about like editors of publishing houses who are not writers. There are editors who edit books and are good at it and they don't write novels. So should those people not give writing advice because they edit books rather than write them? My opinion, I would happily receive writing advice from them. So I tried to take like a similar approach with my videos at first. Obviously things are different now with like my own book on the way and I have 10 years of writing experience now to actually talk about, which I, I've been, I've tried to be cautious about. But I will say that I tried to phrase my writing how-to videos as here is what I learned at the agency or here is what I've tried that's worked for me. And I, I tried to never tell authors what to do with their writing. I try never to be prescriptive, but rather to like inform them on either what's trending, maybe some tactics that, that could work for them or things that literary agents or other professionals maybe they're not interested in. So like you know, the rejections, the querying rejections videos. So um, I will say, you know, I, I get it. You, if you're giving writing advice, I, I feel like it's totally understandable if you'd want that person to have published tons of books before giving that writing advice. But at the same time, I think there are professionals like editors at publishing houses or literary agents that can still give really great writing advice. And that's kind of where I took the channel. Mm. I find it interesting because there are a lot of channels with people who haven't got that much obviously discounting all the stuff that you've done. Like I've seen other channels where a lot of people haven't done that much stuff and they are giving that advice. And what I have found in the comments is that people are still really receptive and they still really look up to that. Cause I think people love the idea of the journey. And even if you're on that journey, it doesn't matter if you know, you've reached that end goal yet. The fact that you're, you're pushing along there, there's always going to be someone else behind you that is looking up to you, trying to learn from any mistakes that you made and just generally push themselves along. So I think it's a, from, from what I've seen, it's a very it can be a very encouraging community, a very supportive community. Do you, do you find that, um, uh, because we had Jenna Moretti, who's a mutual friend, um, on a few weeks back, and she was talking about sort of the balance between positive and negative uh, comments that you get on your channel. How how does that work for you? Is it sort of 
Um, I was going to say it's sort of similar, but it depends on or not you listen to that interview. <laughs> yeah, I would say that if you are on YouTube, you basically are kind of – one of the cons of being on YouTube is that – when you make a decision or you make a mistake, it's very publicly visible. And, you know, or you make any decision, even if it's not a mistake, people are going to critique you. I'm like, I wouldn't have done it that way. And you're like, well, <laughs> you're not me, so go away. Um, so I think it's, it is really tough to be an author on YouTube because I think if you're giving writing advice, people are going to critique your writing way harder than they would anyone else because you give writing advice. And which I think it's fair. It's part of human nature and it's also part of the business. So, you know, it just comes with the territory. But I will say that there are a lot of kind of trolls that hang out in YouTube comments that you don't necessarily see on other platforms like Instagram. So you do have to get like a really thick skin to survive on YouTube if you're going to talk about yourself, your writing, or just put your face on the internet. So there is some of that, but I will say find a writing community, find other people who are in a similar boat to you so that you guys can all talk about it and vent to each other because that's like one of the biggest, like if you just talk to someone in your real life who just doesn't get it, it just it sometimes can be so frustrating because you'll you know if you talk to a like-minded person who's been there who's done the thing who's had the same struggles as you it's just it really helps with the mental health stuff so i would say i totally i kind of totally forget your initial question but youtube <laughs> negative comments yeah you have yeah. to do a, a balance of stuff and you know maybe don't read all the comments i stopped reading comments after the first 1000 views because that's when the trolls come in and i don't got time for that i got to go make new content so i think you got to make boundaries for yourself on social media I love it. Uh, how would you suggest someone approach starting and managing a YouTube channel? Does it take a t particular type of person to, to get up in front of the camera and, and make content? I would say if you hate being on camera with a fiery passion, don't get on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> don't do it. Um, I would also say if you're here for immediate gratification, you're going to be severely disappointed. So YouTube is a marathon and not a sprint. It took me two and a half years of posting weekly videos without any breaks before my channel took off. So you have to be persistent and you have to show up every week and keep going until the algorithms pick you up. And even if they don't and you still want to be on YouTube, then you got to still keep going. And then maybe you're on YouTube for a different reason. But I would... I recommend if you want to grow on YouTube and that's something that's a goal of yours to start watching YouTube before you actually start recording because that's something that I didn't do. Um, specifically, <laughs> yeah, like I, I didn't watch BookTube or AuthorTube until later. I was like, oh, these people are here. This is so cool. I kind of <laughs> do something similar. So I wish I had done some more like research up front, but I would watch creators in the niche that you want to create videos such as BookTube or AuthorTube and see what type of content they create, what they do, and essentially what's expected by the audience of those videos so that you can learn to, how to satisfy that audience and how to stand out. Because, you know, if you're making the same stuff, then you're not going to stand out. If you're making stuff that isn't satisfying the audience, it's something that that audience doesn't want, then no one's going to watch your video. So it's like a fine balance. Um, I also recommend watching YouTube channels where the creators teach about how to succeed on YouTube. Think Media and Think Marketing are probably two of my favorite channels for learning how to YouTube. That way you understand things like how to rank videos, how to title your videos, what types of video thumbnails to make, how to structure your videos, and so on. Um, I have a like, couple other tips, so hang in there. Um, yeah, yeah, shoot. <laughs> 
Uh, another tip is to niche down. So you cannot be everything to everyone. So if you're making videos about writing books, you're doing travel vlogs, you're talking about nutrition, and maybe you're doing a few gardening videos, that's like four different niches that are too different and you cannot nail down a single audience. Instead, pick one thing and become the expert in that one thing on one channel. If you want to make other videos on other topics, make other YouTube channels. But essentially, YouTube will not know who to recommend your videos to in their algorithm if you don't niche down and really target your ideal audience, which is you know kind of what authors are supposed to do with their novels as well. I was well. going to say. <laughs> it's, it's kind of the same thing for YouTube. And last thing I'll say is remember that content is king. It doesn't matter if you're recording on your smartphone or if you have bad lighting. As long as you have good content that's providing value to an audience and that audience can hear you. So yes, you probably do have to get a microphone up front. That's really all that matters. Beautiful, useful. I'll um, drop some links to those those uh, channels that you mentioned as well into the show notes so people can access them if they want to very quickly. Um, you're also a full time mom while managing all of these different strands of uh, an author tuber life. How do how do you manage it all? What what what's the secret sauce that, that keeps you going that keeps everything together? Uh, unfortunately, there is no secret. Uh, I would just say that <laughs> I wish I had a secret that I could share. But you know, I don't manage things perfectly. I'm constantly shifting my schedules and priorities. And I would say that if you you really have to be ruthless with how you plan your time. Be willing to say no to things. So whether that's a family gathering back before COVID, um, and you need time to write, then you say no to the gathering. Or if it's like an opportunity, maybe that's author related, author platform, whatever, and you don't think has a good ROI, say no. ROI return on investment for listeners if you're not sure what that meant. But I would say you also need to prioritize what you do when you have free time. So I personally recommend doing the most important thing first and like at the, the first time you can that day, the first free time, when you have time and energy, do the most important thing first. Often that means getting your writing in first. Sometimes like for me, that means I do YouTube stuff first and I'll edit a sponsored video and whatever, but whatever it is, consider what's important urgent or urgent and important. And sometimes what's urgent might not be important and vice versa. There's totally a uh, picture for this. This There's is like not matrix, my unique yeah. idea. Yes. Yeah. It, it, it's, this is not my idea. I'm so sorry. I totally forget who, um, but look, it's like a four quadrant thing with like mm. urgent, not urgent, important, not important. Anyways. Um, Last, when you first start out, you, uh, like as an author, you're making your author platform, you usually have to say yes to every opportunity you get to get your name out there. But once you have a place, once you've gotten to a place where your platform has grown, you do get to be more selective of what opportunities you do. Not to mention, once you do grow, your time becomes infinitely more precious. So all that to say, don't be afraid to say no. You cannot be all things to all people. And if you keep saying yes to opportunities, you probably will no longer have time for your dream, which I'm assuming, you know, if people are listening, it's probably to write books. So, um, and then of course, a very practical thing, if you're like a family person, you know, whether or not you have kids or a spouse, or maybe, you know, you're a, you're a brother or a sister, or a daughter, whatever, when you're with your family or friends, be with your family and friends, unplug from social media, unplug for your emails, put your phone in the other room if you have to. But I know it's for authors. It's really hard to be mentally present when our brains are in fantasy land, but I think it's really important to plug in when you have to plug in and unplug and to spend time with the people that you care about. Mm. So, so key. I, uh, I, <laughs> I personally remember a year where I was particularly nose to the grindstone working my ass off, got to a point where over Christmas, my whole family came around. It was Christmas Eve or, or around there. It wasn't actually Christmas Day. Um, and I remember getting to a point where my mum, my nan, my sister, 
my, my dad were all sat on their phones. So I literally just like went around, scooped up all their phones, just hid them in another room, was like, this is a family day. I've been working my ass off. I'm present. <laughs> Let's make this actually happen. I, I cannot believe like how, uh, how interwoven just technology has become. And it's not, it's not always a bad thing, but I completely agree with being intentional about when you consume media and because you, it's, it's, it's such an unconscious thing. Sometimes you just find yourself being late. Lazy is the wrong word, but just being distracted in terms of just grabbing, grabbing your phone. And obviously that's not going to help you relax and really recover in those times when you need it most. Yeah. And I think too, like for authors, social media at some point becomes part of our job. Mm -hmm. And so like, it's, you don't no longer pick up your phone to do something relaxing or for fun or to talk to people. I mean, obviously, hopefully we still do some of that too, but a lot of times we pick up our phone and not like we're working, we're networking with people, we're commenting on people's posts, we're trying to show up and get, get our names out there. So I think, yeah, just unplugging from the phone sometimes is just really important for authors. Yeah, definitely. If you could give one piece of advice to help writers in 2020 and 2021, what would it be? Yeah, since we're talking about YouTube and author platform, I'll give a tip on that. So I recommend starting your author platform today, whether or not it's YouTube. You don't have to have a published book to start. So that way, when you do have a published book, you'll have an audience ready and eager to check it out. However, don't let yourself get lost in the shuffle. It's pretty easy to get swept away in author platform stuff and allow that to take over your writing time. Been there, done that. So... (laughs) Make sure your writing still comes first um, as far as where you spend your time and don't be afraid to start your author platform today. There are a lot of cons to being on the internet, but also there are a lot of pros and it's one of the best ways to connect with fellow authors and of course, readers. Beautiful. I have uh, one main question for you before we get into the Patreon questions. Yeah. And that question is, Megalator, why do you write? Oh gosh, that's such a tough question. It's like, what is your favorite book? What is your favorite child? You're not supposed to have that answer. <laughs> uh, why do I write? Uh, I would say it's an inherent need. Sometimes like, you, I just feel this swell of emotions or stories or whatever, and I can't quite articulate them until I have pen to paper or fingers to keyboard. So I think for me, it's just a form of communication. And I think I've always valued reading for escapism. And I want to go to some place that's better than where we're at. No pandemics, no nothing. You know, you can go there and be wonderful. And so I think to me also, writing is a form of escapism. I can make these really epic worlds. I can tinker in my imagination. I can write books that I want to read with characters that I hope to see or whatever. So um, I guess that that's the best answer I got. <laughs> oh, so like you got your little plug for Tinker in there as well. Ah! <laughs> that, <laughs> that was, was unintentional. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay, so into uh, the Patreon questions now. So these questions were sent over by patrons over at www.patreon.com forward slash great writer share. And the first one is from Yanni Jade, who says, I love iRightily. <laughs> your episodes oh. are so helpful. Given there is a pandemic going on, do you know what this would mean for the traditional publishing side of things? Yeah, I actually made an episode on this topic on the Publishable YouTube channel, so I recommend checking that out. But right now, what we are seeing is books are being moved to different publishing seasons in the traditional publishing space. There are fewer in-person author signings and a lot more online events and really no in-person book tours. There are there have been some like virtual book tours. So basically, everything has been moving from in-person to online. Another thing is a lot of traditional publishing's marketing tactics is having books in brick and mortar bookstores. But if there's a pandemic, less people are going into those brick and mortar bookstores and checking books out that way. So publishers are being forced to really explore the online 
publishing world, I guess, finding readers to the online space, which is something that indies have been doing really well. I would say though, that editors are still acquiring books and agents are still signing clients. So don't worry, <laughs> but they're, you know, the types of books that people want are different. I had mentioned this earlier in the interview, but the dark and gritty books aren't in favor because many people are seeking books for escapism from the pandemic. So maybe that might be a hard sell right now if you've written something that's darker versus like a light and fluffy, I don't know, romance read or something. So I would keep an eye out on the hashtag uh, that's MSWL, it stands for Manuscript Wishlist on Twitter. It's also a website uh, just to see what agents are specifically asking for because hopefully if they're a good agent, what they're asking for is not just things that is like of personal interest to them, but the things that editors are also asking for. And sometimes the editors also use MSWL. So keep an eye on like what's trending. Also, hop on Twitter, you know, because that's where a lot of the traditional publishing industry professionals hang out and will share some insiders. Just going to write a note to myself. Now is a bad time to release three episodes in a serial. <laughs> <laughs> some people do use horror as escapism. So, you know, you never yeah. know. I found it uh, hilarious as a, a writer that I, I follow quite closely. who's in the post-apocalyptic genre and about probably about a week into the actual global lockdown he sent an email out because he was about to, he, he had it timed up anyway um but his latest series was uh, about contagion it was about this virus taking over and it was book one in this series he'd been working on for months and i was like ah oh, such a such unfortunate timing it seems to be selling okay so um i don't know but yeah just one of those kind of ironic things that it just popped out then yeah, the timing is unfortunate. But I will say, I mean, like, if you're in a crappy time with a pandemic and whatever, there are going to be some readers that are like, I would like to see how fictional characters deal with this crap that I'm presently <laughs> dealing with. So there is definitely an audience for it. But in traditional publishing, it's a little tricky because, you know, you're kind of dealing with lots of opinions and whatever. Yeah, sure. Uh, Sasha Black asks, how she writes such a good three-way sex scene? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sasha, thank you for your um, <laughs> eloquent question. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, I asked Sasha Black a ways back if she would consider reading The Cyborg Tinker and writing an endorsement if she enjoyed the book. I'm amazed to share that she did. So in my novel, which is why she has the context for this three-way <laughs> sex scene, in my novel, The Cyborg Tinker, which is an adult steampunk space opera mashup, I have a polyamorous love triangle. And there may or may not be a steamy threesome in the book. You'll just have to read it to find out. But <laughs> as far as how to write good sex scenes, I think you first want to decide what steam level you are comfortable writing and would fit your age category and genre. So this could be anything from like a sweet romance, so maybe like just kissing, light kissing, all the way to like erotica and for those of you who don't know erotica is like the, there is no plot it, the book is just there's just a bunch of sex scenes in a row <laughs> which is totally fine and to each their own but just be aware of kind of that spectrum of steam level so there's also closed door sex scenes and then there are sex scenes that are mostly like emotion but the, uh you know hinting at what's going on and then others are more explicit so decide whatever you're comfortable writing and what makes sense for the book so for me i like to write explicit sex scenes with a heavy dash of emotion so it's not all about a clinical description of what's happening, but infusing everything with emotions and sometimes near describing something and allowing the reader to imagine just what's happening. <laughs> so 
I think writing good sex scenes is also about research. There are uh, good ways to write sex scenes and very bad ways to write them. For example, clinical descriptions of penises and vaginas are very awkward and downright boring to read. So read lots of romance novels or novels featuring sex, I think, to learn the ropes and to see how people do that well. Last thing I will say is to carefully consider if sex is necessary in your novel. Does it move the plot in some way? If not, maybe it's not necessary. Maybe maybe you don't need sex in your novel. Who knows? Perfect. And now we are going to go straight into the quick fire round. I have 10 questions for you. I'm going to throw at you as quickly as possible. Okay. Uh, you feel free to pass if any of them stump you or if people sometimes get stuck. Um, but otherwise, it's all just in good fun. So are you ready? I'm so ready. Beautiful. If you could visit one other planet other than Earth, fictional planets included, where would it be? Um... Uh, does, does your own books count? I don't yep. know. I, yep. <laughs> I would like to go to uh, one of the planets in the, the Cyborg Tanker in the Crescent Star System. That's nice. cheating. It's totally cheating. <laughs> totally narcissistic, but keep going. How many pairs of shoes do you own? Oh, too many. Uh, 30. What is a typical breakfast for you? Oatmeal. Pirate ships or spaceships? Pirate ships all the way. Who was the last writer to make you cry? <sighs> oh, I have no idea. I don't cry very often in a book, so I'm going to pass. Worst film of all time? Dare I say Aragon? (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Favorite kind of animal? Uh, Tigers. One place you'd love to visit? London. What's the farthest you've ever run? Half marathon. What's your favorite song? Anything by Van Canto. Beautiful. And that's 10 questions. One bonus question. Where can my listeners find out everything about yourself and all that you're working on? Absolutely. Uh, so I am most active on YouTube at iWriterly. I'm also on Instagram at Meg underscore Latour and Instagram at Meg Latour. Uh, if none of this makes sense and all sounds like gumble gook, go to my website, iWriterly.com and you'll see all the links there. Yeah. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And definitely check out Cyborg Tinkerer, which is, have you got a release date for that? Yes. November 17th, 2020. Definitely. So if you like the sound of that, grab yourselves a copy. It's all up for pre-order, isn't it? Yes. Yes, because it's it's doing very, very well in the charts from what I've seen. So congratulations on all that success. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, we've uh, hit a few best-selling lists, which has been awesome. Awesome. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for, for spending some time with me. It's been absolutely fantastic actually getting a chance to talk to you. So I appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much for having me on. It was uh, very difficult not to fangirl too hard, but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. And uh, thank you everyone for listening and I will see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Great Writer Share podcast. Join us next week where we'll be celebrating episode number 50 with a host of special guests. Don't forget you can get early access to every episode of the Great Writer Share podcast and the chance to ask upcoming guests any of your questions just by becoming a patron of the show. All you need to do is visit www.patreon.com forward slash Great Writer Share and support the show for as little as $1 a month. One more time, that's www.patreon.com forward slash Great Writer Share. Until next time. ACAST powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. Hi, I'm Jackie Johnson, the beauty talk shock jock, and I host Natch Butte, a podcast that explores the self-care space while laughing, yelling, singing, and keeping things 
cruelty-free. Oh, yeah. I gab with celebs, makeup artists, female indie brand owners, and fellow funny folks about what beauty and self-care mean to them, as well as what's in their bags. Looking good while doing good. We are voting with our wallets. We are buying cruelty-free products, and we are having a goddamn blast laughing with our pals while we do it. That's Natch Butte. This is the Natch Butte Pod. Welcome, baby. Listen to Natch Butte on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast, 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 Acast recommends. recommends.